Hello and welcome, heroes, to the Crit Academy. I am your host, Justin. And I'm your co-host, Ian. This podcast was created to provide you, our heroes, with new and reusable material for both players and DMs. We hope to inspire you with creative content that you can bring with you on your next adventure. Our show may not be suitable for young children, but neither is our D&D game. Oh, heck no. Thank you for joining us today here at Crit Academy Studios, where everything's made up and your roles don't matter. That's right. Your roles are like a world without any rich history. Dun, dun, dun. So as with every episode, we would like to really start the show off on a high note by giving away fat loots. Hashtag fat loots, right? Doctor. <laughs> Each episode, we will draw one lucky subscriber's name, and they will win the five-star rated adventure, Banquet of the Damned, compliments of Goblin Stone. Goblin Stone is a community project for D&D fans based out of the UK. They aim to be a place where you can team up with professionals to turn your ideas into high-quality products and give every fan a chance to get published. Be sure to head over to www.goblinstone.com or you can check out our fellowship link on our website, www.critacademy.com. Who's our winner today, Ian? I think their name is pronounced Shane Rada. When it comes crashing down and it hurts inside You gotta take a stand, it don't help to hide So congratulations, Shane Rada. If you like the adventure, please let us know. Please let Goblin Stone know. Leave a review. Um, that's how they improve their products for all their listeners. So make sure you do that. Um, so, although I do believe it's a slight tradition at this point, uh, sorry people, people use your names. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get started, I am sick. I'm not feeling really well, so if I'm not as in po- the commanding and powerful voice that I normally am, it's because I feel like crap. But I'm here because I love you. Yeah, not gonna lie, you're not quite kneel before Zod right now. <laughs> I don't kneel before anybody except for the God Queen. Okay. <laughs> Wise. <laughs> That's just how I roll, personally. Uh, but we got a really great show for you guys today. I'm super excited. Somehow, we haven't touched on this topic yet, and that just... Which is kind of weird. Yeah, that should have been... Honestly, I'm pretty sure I wrote it down forever ago, and it was things that I kept pushing off because I wanted to do something special for it. And I'm hoping Ian will do it with me. So we'll see. We're going to talk about it a little later. Indeed. Um, but uh, we'll be discussing world building um, for all you DMs out there, or just all you people who want to write. Um, world, the world building in D and D is not only great for game mechanics, but it's great if you like to write fiction or, um, write a story to tell people. Um, it's to me, that's awesome. This is a good way to do that. A good world is something that your players want to be in. Yeah. Um, so we have a really interesting, let's talk about blank segment. Um, it's not so much a question, but was a very interesting post on the thieves can't. (laughs) Jones says, I kneel for all. Mostly men, actually. Wink, wink. You know what? That's okay. We don't. We we support. We support your decision to play on whatever team you want. Whatever works for you. D and D is a game that's all inclusive. And our main topic is going to be world building. Obviously, we're super excited about that. And then, of course, we have our unearthed tips and tricks, where we deliver new and reusable content for both players and DMs. But before all that, we have in the realm. Where we talk about a little bit what's going on in our realm. Ian, what's going on in your realm? And don't say sleep. Yeah, or lack thereof. Or lack thereof. <laughs> <laughs> uh, joking aside, though, I actually uh, did manage to see some, both 
sets of uh, grandparents this weekend, which is always kind of nice. Oh, that's always nice. I love spending time with the grandparents. It was kind of fun too about my grandparents, though. Is um, short version. If you ever see one's house and the other one's yard, so if I visit one, I have to visit the other. <laughs> so oh. that's convenient, though, right? For like family gatherings yep. and spending time together. And when I met with my mom's uh, parents in particular, and my mom was there and stepdad and so on and so forth, but the mm-hmm. uh, we we ended up meeting at a Mexican restaurant, which was a great opportunity for me to try some new hot sauces. Oh yeah, I saw the picture. I couldn't pronounce what you had, but it looked I, good. I can't pronounce it either. I just so I can get it at Walmart or my grocery store. Uh, it looked really good. I I love hot stuff. I love to eat spicy. Um, I just it know, gives me the run sometimes, but uh, I just nice. know I discovered I apparently have a much higher talent for hot sauce than everybody else in the family. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> One one of my favorite hobbies is to try super hot stuff. Um, if you haven't been to Buffalo Wild Wings, they're like really hot. They're hottest. I don't remember what it's called, but it's blazing. Uh, blazing. It's blazing. It's not. It's not the hottest thing I've tried, but it definitely your your butthole will be burning for a day or two. I never actually <laughs> tried their hottest sauce, but I, I want to. But actually, there's a hot sauce I found online that I can't remember like the. It has a long name, but the only part I remember is. It's called colon cleaner. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, that's really cool, man. And of course, been playing more Warframe. I'm actually building a uh, another frame right now, which takes three days in game. So okay, so I have another frame. Nice, but I don't know how to get my flight suit. Um, you have to keep playing the quest till they give it to you. Because I'm supposed to get. I've got the. I've got the print, but I can't figure out how to get the materials. Uh, just go, I mean, just look on the uh, Warframe wiki and they'll tell you where to find what. Yeah, I tried that. I couldn't follow it. There was a lot of blue links. There's just like a link to this, a link to that. And I just remember that I mostly just uh, clicked on the um, Archframe quest and just went from there. Okay, I'll, I'll try. It said I needed the, the items first before it would let me click the quest, though, and that was the problem I ran into. Although I'm still stuck on that quest where you have to recruit the dog creature. Oh. But anyways, I got the prime frame, so nice. So I'm really excited. Which I, which, which prime frame did you grab? Uh, I don't know. How dare you? I I just clicked one that looked cool. I just know right now I'm uh, building the uh, rhino. Okay, that sounds cool. Yeah, the my axe does ridiculous damage, but I refuse to switch to it until I max out my sword. Yeah, I built an axe, maxed that out, and it did some pretty good stuff. I mounted it out. Oh, very cool, very cool. Uh, if you're interested, we play Warframe pretty regularly. I think I've got, I think I got like six or seven hours in it, which that's a lot for me. Um, and it's free to play if you're interested. And you want to join us one time? I have way more. Oh, whatever. I'm sure you do. <laughs> um, so what's going on in your, your realm, Justin? Um, not a whole lot. Spending a lot of time on the show stuff. I'm not feeling too good today. I. Uh, Caffeine. Been playing the crap out of Final Fantasy XIV, of course. So that's kind of. I'm trying to click, get through the new content. They just had an, exp, uh, an uh, every three months, pretty much. They all they come out with new content. Um, so I'm trying to get through that stuff right now. Um, I think I'm gonna change from a white mage to a DPS though, because questing as a healer is a pain in the ass. I would imagine. Actually, I think about. I think we've both seen Thor Ragnarok. Oh yeah, I did see Thor Ragnarok. If you haven't seen Thor Ragnarok, it's fucking awesome, and you need to get your ass out of your chair if you're watching us right now and go see it right now because it's better than us for sure. Well, actually, watch us first, then go see Thor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Uh, it was hilarious, and one of my favorite. Uh, the stuff you see in the the trailer, the funny, is not the end of it. Like I was so surprised. I thought I went and seen a comedy, with like a little bit of serious. I'm not gonna ruin the moment, but I did love the scene when Thor tried to break the window. 
Yes, that was pretty hilarious. I also like the the uh, the scene where uh, a particular character looks out on the arena and says, "I have to get off this world." <laughs> He's like all freaked out. It's pretty awesome. If you haven't seen it, it is by far the best Thor movie, and it's definitely up there with some of the the other Marvel uh, quality Marvel movies. Movies. So, and not gonna lie, my Kate Blanchett crushes back. <laughs> Kate Blanchett is your crush. It is now. <laughs> <laughs> Man, she's she is pretty smoking. Oh, that's sweet. Jones like, nah, I appreciate this too much. Well, we're glad you enjoy the show. We uh we put a lot of heart and a lot of work into it, and it's nice to be appreciated. So thank you, Joan. From me to you. <laughs> yeah, I love that three second delay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what's going on in my realm. If you haven't seen Thor, go see it. It's awesome. But watch us first. Um So, speaking of other realms. And if you want to visit other realms, go check out one of our sponsors, Audible, where you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash critacademy. Yeah, Audible has over 180,000 titles for you to choose from for all of your mobile devices. Definitely check it out. So I'm really excited about our Let's Talk About Blank today. This good stuff. So this isn't so much a question from a listener, but more of what I thought was a very interesting discussion on Facebook. And so I decided to pick it as a topic and share it with you. It was a good idea. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Oh, huh. um, so Elvis, you're not. <laughs> whatever. Nobody asked you. Uh, so today, uh, on let's talk about blank. We have a lesson in Thieves Can't. Um, so before we talk about Thieves Can't and uh, the submission, we're going to read what Thieves Can't is, just so you got an idea where we're coming from. Thieves Can't. During your rogue training, you've learned Thieves Can't, a secret mix of dialect, jargon, and code that allows you to hide messages in seemingly normal conversation. Only another creature that knows Thieves Can't can understand such messages. It takes four times as long to convey such a message than it does to speak the same idea plainly. And it goes on to explain a bunch of other stuff. I'm not going to read all that, but that's basically the gist of it, Mm -hmm. which is pretty... That's that's pretty open, right? I mean, it is. It doesn't go into super detail. So, I mean, most of the time though, when players are playing rogue, they have somebody say in game, "I'm talking to this guy." These can't, so don't win. That's what we're saying. <laughs> and that's basically how it goes in the game, right? Um, well, I've also described it as such as like you know, a bottle tipped a certain way on the top of a door frame also meant something because it mentioned sim- uh, signals and symbols and stuff like that, or you know, particular you know shapes kind of combined together. All that kind of goes together. But I know graffiti has come up here and there too. What's that? I know graffiti has come up here yep. and there too. Graffiti is a good way where they've said that you know you can hide hide it in what looks like graffiti, but it's actually got some sort of meaning. I, I still laugh at where in Thieves Can we. Our thief read a message that said, "Beware of so and so, guys." And we kind of like character, kind of like guys, beware of the, of this guy. That's what the thieves can't told me. Uh, you idiot! That's the chief of security here. Of course, there's somebody who knows thieves can't going to say, "Beware of this guy." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so this awesome submission was on Facebook by Timothy Urban, featuring Joey Twelve Fingers. Now, I think we should try to do this in our best. Uh, mobster voices as we go through this mobster voice yeah i don't i don't think mine i don't think mine is good as yours yeah right i think mine's better yeah yours is a lot better so so maybe i can do the squealy guy you know what i mean yeah. i think i'll go with the squealy guy so, so are you one or two i'm gonna be number one okay uh so basically what we're gonna do is we're gonna act out a scene between two rogues using thieves can't from uh 
Timothy's description. And then we're going to go back and actually say what it actually meant. Because I think this is really cool. So, does anyone here know Joey Twelvefingers? I might. How tall is he? He's real tall, but with soft facial features. Where'd you see him last? We were fishing down at the docks and then heading uptown. I think I might know him. Blonde or brunette? Oh, he's brunette. <laughs> he's brunette, and he has a birthmark on the tip of his ninth finger. Hmm. Wasn't that like a nangle of his eighth finger? You know what? That's right. Do you know where I can find him? I got a couple of friends who have been looking for him, too. Might they help you look? Nah, Joey doesn't like crowds. Is your uncle coming? No. Who's your uncle? My, um, my uncle recently came down with hemp fever, but we'll find someone to go along. <laughs> so that is the submission. Uh, Jome asks, have you guys seen the history of Thieves' Cant? It's the origin, uh, it's from, uh... Its origin is from France, and there are a bunch of ways to get the idea across. I have not, Joan. If in your meanderings uh, you want to find a link to that and share it, we will add it to the show notes. And then other people can. Because I definitely will watch that because you keep sending me pure gold. So, this But anyways. Is, this is true. So, uh, so that was th- this gentleman's interpretation of Thieves' Cant. So now what we're going to go through is we're going to go back and actually translate as we read does anyone here know joey 12 fingers i'm looking for people to run a heist i might know how tall is he i might be interested how big of a heist are we talking <laughs> this is real tall but with self facial features big but easy we're just seeing him last where are you looking at hitting we are fishing down at the docks and then headed uptown the higher end dock warehouses I think I might know him. Blonde or brunette? I'm interested. Is it AM or PM? Hmm. Brunette. He has a birthmark on the tip of his ninth finger. 9 PM. Hmm. Wasn't it the second nickel of his eighth finger? 8.30 PM works better for me. Hmm. That's right. Do you know where I can find him? Fine. 8.30. Are you in? I got a couple of friends who might be looking for him too. Might they help you look? I have other associates who would also be interested. Nah, Joey doesn't like crowds. No thanks, let's keep it between us. Is the uncle coming? Do you have a guy lined up for offloading the stolen goods? No. Who's your uncle? No, who's your guy? My uncle has recently come down with hemp fever, but we'll find someone to go along. My guy was hanged, but we'll find one. (laughs) (laughs) So this is... Uh, Timothy Urban's take on Thieves Can't and I think it's awesome. It's very subtle and it's very it's very in passing you wouldn't think nothing of it. What do you think? I, I thought it was pretty clever. <laughs> yeah, and and something that I thought was interesting is that I could easily see this as a DM having a guy every all the players starting an adventure having the players start in say a, a tavern and this guy stands up and starts asking this questions and you could say, you know, does anyone here know Joey Twelve Fingers? And you could turn to the person that knows Thieves Can and say, "Hey, um, this guy is speaking in Thieves Can, and you know that he's asking about a heist. Are you interested?" Although, if you actually do take time to write a full codex for this, the other person will be like, "What the crap are you guys talking about?" Well, and you don't even need a whole codex. Just right. like a, this is like a simple scene that a, the the DM could write out, mm-hmm. and then you know when the he if the let's say the rogue says, "Yeah, I'm interested," so. Uh, your response might be, 
I might, how tall is he? And basically, you know that means I might be interested, but how big is the heist? So you could easily play this off without the player really fully needing to understand True. all the stuff that's going on. Or or if you really wanted to get fancy and not include anybody else in it, say you got a team of three or four players, you could give the script mm-hmm. to the player in advance. And then you can start having a one-on conversation with them just like this. And they may not have any idea what's going on. Right. Our Let's Talk About Blank just became a bonus encounter concept, by the way. So hashtag extra features or extra options. Indeed. Um, but I think this is awesome, and I think you can get really creative. Like, what I've done in the past is kind of what you talked about where, you know, you see some symbols and some guy's talking, and here's what he's actually talking about. But I've never really acted it out. If you took the time to do this, not only, A, would it really engage a, a feature of the rogue that's not as prevalent in games but it would also just create an awesome role play scene if you really developed it out as the dm so mm-hmm. i really think or as a player you could write this out as a player and ask the dm hey can we do this and i i as a dm would be like hell yeah we'll figure out a way to fit it in somehow you know and that could also help encourage the the players to help develop the world as well anything you want to add to that well maybe i, I know a baker who just came with a new shipment of cannolis <laughs> Oh, yeah, what, what flavor cannolis? Chocolate. Oh. Yeah, I don't say. Oh, chocolate upsets my stomach. But thanks for the heads up. <laughs> <laughs> See, that was a good example. You just kind of went with it, and it, it, it works. I mean, I'm really excited. I think that this is an awesome idea, and honestly, I can't wait to use this. I am definitely going to use this. Some, you, do you want to roll a rogue sometime? <laughs> you mean, isn't my swashbuckler? <laughs> oh, yeah, you are a swashbuckler. I keep forgetting. <laughs> Little bastard hit and run. He you're does like his a, job. You're like a drunk driver, man, just hit and run. <laughs> he does his job. Um, so that is our Let's Talk About Blank. I want to thank Timothy Urban. That was an awesome suggestion, an awesome Facebook conversation that I enjoyed thoroughly being a part of. So moving on to our main topic, we have world building. Now, I'm super excited about this. Um, I love world building. I've For a long time, I've liked to run my own homebrew. Though, in all honesty, I'm much like Gabe from Interparty Conflict. Uh, We both really much find ourselves at our best when we combine our own content with pre-written content, and we kind of evolve from that. Which makes sense. I mean, the few times I do run games, I usually try to keep it more freeform, as I'm sure you very well Mm -hmm. noticed, which which is fine. Yep. But I do it that way more or less to keep things open for the players to build things as they want to, which is... Which has its plus and minuses like anything else. Yeah, but, yeah. And, and, and that's kind of where it is. You know, when it comes to world building, it's a huge task to world build, to fill out a world. Oh, yeah. Um, so the very first question you should be asking yourself is, why do I want to build my own world? Because it's awesome. Okay, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? What are some of the advantages that come with building your own world versus uh, using something that's already pretty much fleshed out? Well, when you build your own world, you obviously know the world better than anybody else. So you are, A, you less likely need to look at references for what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, or, that's a good one. But because you built it yourself, it, it may feel fresh to not just you, but your players as well. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, You actually touched on a point I want to kind of touch on. <laughs> um, okay. Is that you know the lore better than anybody else. But in actuality, that was a challenge that I've really had with in the past, running pre-written content is that Mm -hmm. a player like uh, troy is a great example the guy devours lore like nobody's business and apparently just like joan who just loves lore where i might not know something right off the bat but instead of stopping the game to look it up i would just say yeah yeah it's to the north and 
I might be wrong. That city, Neverwinter, might be to the far east from where you're at. And I would get called out on that. So then it started to challenge what I knew or my preconceptions of the world and theirs, since they know it already, too. I'll admit, I would like to know more about the Forgotten Realms setting. I just don't, don't take the time to delve into it, and I certainly have not read any of the novels yeah. that is based on the setting. <laughs> I went to a local library and just picked up the entire Dritz series, so I'm actually going to start reading that. It's in my truck right now. I'm going to start reading it tomorrow. So Actually, I do have the uh, original trilogy on my shelf. I just haven't been blown up to dust and read it yet. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I actually kept putting it off because he kept telling me to... Give, give it a shot, and I haven't, so... Well, actually, I found this copy at a used bookstore, and it was in, not going to lie, way better condition than most of their books in that bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> so, basically, you know, once you've decided to build your own world, um, there's a couple different things you have to consider. How much of the ideas do you want to be your own, and how much of the ideas do you want to be borrowed concepts? Now, I don't think innately one is better than the other, Um Personally, the ongoing. <laughs> uh, Joan says, uh, "I hope I can spread that knowledge." Ian, wink, wink. That's that's what his show is going to be about. Oh, if, nice. you guys, if you guys don't know, Joan's working on his own podcast. That'll be a lot about the lore of the world, and I'm, that's why I'm super excited because I don't know a lot of it. Right. I read it, but I forget it, and unless I use it, like I know a lot about Neverwinter because a I played Neverwinter Nights, I played Neverwinter the game, and I've run entire adventures for months at a time from Neverwinter, so I know a lot about that. But everything else, not so much. Actually, actually, a pretty good concept of a uh, world in this kind of mind is I read the white comic uh, D Twenty Monkey, mm-hmm. and there actually was an entire subplot that went on for a while of the main character the webcomic follows actually built his own homebrew world. Oh, yeah? And it's like, called like a Carthoon, and it's a very like a high magic t- type setting. While, don't get me wrong, I am not a better storyteller than the writers at Wizards of the Coast, and I'll never pretend to be. The advantage that I love about homebrew is that I can just make shit up on the fly and take it as a truth. And you'll learn my opinion about that in, in some of the other shows we've done, where when a player says something, sometimes take it as a truth. And I'm not going to lie, too, when I actually read through this uh, setting in the webcast, I'm like, I want to play in this setting. It was, it was that good. It actually, in fact, he actually did a Kickstarter on it. See, and that's how you know that writing is good, is when it, it, it draws you to it. Um, When you're using your own ideas or you're borrowing concepts, changing traditional tropes is another way to do that. Yeah. Do elves still live in trees? Do... Or do they live underground instead of in, in mountains instead of, say, dwarves? Actually, yeah, Dragon Age did a pretty good job of uh, mixing up the yes. regular tropes, too. I loved, I loved uh, playing the, is it the Dalish, that's the slaves. Right. I, I thought that that was an amazing trope because usually elves are like these highborn, superior than everyone else type race, and here they are, little bitches. Or, <laughs> or another good example, too, is the Templar, which are were essentially the setting's paladins, but they basically made quite a few of them douchebags. Now, granted, they have a reason to be what they are. Right. Right. That's but, a good example, too. It's like, okay, yes, they're complete jerks to mages, but there's a legit reason for it. <laughs> right, right. So, once you've kind of settled on the idea that you're going to, you are going to build your own world, there are many different places to start. Now, oh, yeah. I've built my uh, a couple of my own different worlds. The one, actually, if you've listened to episode like 26, I think, of our show, you got to experience one called Lumeria. That was one that was actually created. Were you a part of that creation? I was not. We, okay. So there was a couple of us that got together and played. Uh, started with map building. So world map building is a great place to start mm-hmm. because you can fill it in as you go, and it gives you an idea and a sense of the world. Now, that's a bigger task because you're trying to design a whole entire world 
right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. We cheated, though. There's a game called Dawn of Worlds. It's a dice-rolling game for creating an entire world. Um, and we're actually going to talk all about this on the next episode. Some other ways um, to do that are to start small and work your way out. Um, I think, personally, this is one of my favorite ways to do it because we can start with a city, right? Mm-hmm. And as you start to describe the city, you can kind of get the history of the way it goes. For instance, let's say we start uh, a kingdom. Uh, we were just talking Dragon Age. We start with the kingdom of Kirkwall, right? Hey. How, yeah. many, how many people would be in our kingdom? 100,000. That's a lot. That's kind of a bit. You said the whole kingdom. Oh, I did say a whole kingdom. Let's start with a city. <laughs> Let's start with the city of Kirkwall. Okay, 10,000. Okay, so we got 10,000 people. What's the population distribution? Uh, about, about 50% human, 10% okay. dwarf, 40% elf. Okay, so then that kind of leads into some other uh, other uh, questions as to, okay, why is it 50% to 10%? Why is there only 10% dwarves? Yeah, because it's not a native city, but they use it as a popular trade route for them. <laughs> okay, so, and I would say that elves, those elves, they're... Uh, this is a place that they pass through on a pilgrimage. So the only reason they're there is they're going somewhere else. All right, then. Right? And why are the humans the biggest population? Well, it's because they built the place. Yep. I think we should also, while we're at it, I think it's called a Fantasy World, which is like a, it's like a open source RPG. But mm-hmm. I don't, do you know the base rules is like the DM does no prep at all. But the world's fleshed out from the backgrounds that the characters pre- present forward. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. What's that called? Fantasy Worlds? I think so. Okay, we'll have to look at that because I haven't heard of that. Um, so as you start asking yourself questions about a particular region, you start thinking about it. Well, you mentioned, you know, why is there only 10% population elves? It's because it's they're just... Dwarves. They're, are just passing through. Or the dwarves are just using it as a staple to sell some stuff. They're not really living there. That stuff kind of comes with it. And then the next thing is, what is in this area? So let's decide... Let, if you decide that, okay, I, I want... What is, what, is the, what is supporting the city? How are they staying alive? There's got to be probably some sort of water source. If there's not a water source, how are they... Where are they getting their water? There is a lake ne- next door to the city. Okay, that that's the easiest solution. Or... Maybe maybe it's in a desert area, so they have to well deal, uh, dig deep, deep, deep wells. So they got an entire slave process of how are they getting these deep wells dug in constant flow of water. So stories kind of just come out of asking yourself questions about areas. And you can just start with, like, I, when I do it, it's like a brainstorm bubble. You know, I start with the main idea, and then I just branch from it, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I do my ideas, because writing too much kind of hurts my hand. But <laughs> um, So continually asking your questions yourself questions about an area uh if you decide you want to build mountains who lives in those mountains well the uh, orcs of course okay why are the orcs living in a mountain because the humans won't let them into the city humans won't let them in the city. that's a good one i would say that the reason they live in the mountains is because it's a very fortified location if you say it's more of a, a valley of mountains maybe that valley is only got one entrance and it's heavily fortified so now there's only one way in and one way out. So that from a combat and protective standpoint, they don't need to build a big city with walls. They're using natural, natural surroundings as kind of their walls. So it kind of just goes with the territory. Each kind of idea has its own uh, advantages and disadvantages. Another one is gods. Mm-hmm. Um, some people like to start with the gods and say, okay, how many gods do I want? Is it a single god world, dual con- dual? dual world or are there is there an entire pantheon because you can build an entire world just by starting with the gods okay 
the very first God I'm going to start with, I'm, I'm going to do eight gods. That's what I want. Okay. How do I want? I want a God of the earth. Okay. Well, what, what are his powers? What has he done to, to really make an impact? Maybe he's got giant craters where he, he tripped and fell and he's a big blubbery guy. Now you got a Grand Canyon type, type thing, you know? Or you can do like a uh, God of Destruction, a God of Preservation, a God of Creation. <laughs> yeah, because that'll create war, right? Mm-hmm. And create battles in big events around the world. It really, each person's going to have their own way to start. Um, but I think if you're going to build a D&D world, there is some certain core assumptions that are pretty important to the world when you're deciding to build it. Now, for the purposes of this recording, we or this show, we're going to talk in the te- terms of fantasy uh, right. because that's what D&D is mostly. So for the points of this, we're going to talk about some of the things that you really need to keep up at the forefront of your mind when you're building. The first one is the world is a fantastic place, right? Mm -hmm. Magic exists. Servants of the gods wield immeasurable power, right? And dragons build layers all around the planet. Those are kind of some givens. The game world is a, a blend of real world physics, cultures, histories, but it's spiked with fantastical concepts and ideas and and you see this a lot it doesn't the world doesn't care what knights are historically and it doesn't it cares about what knights are in your world i would say paladin is a great example too Mm -hmm. there's a certain assumption about paladins right that paladins are these holy warriors that'll fight for all that is right and just you made a perfect point when you talked about um the templars the templars and dragon they're douches they're douchebags but like I said, there is a legit reason for it, though. Right, but but that's a that's a a, a trope that's a little bit that they turn away from that trope, right? right? They, I mean, they're knights; they're these supposed to be these holy warriors, but they're not really, you know. And there's a story behind why they're not. So when when you're building your world, don't necessarily fi- you don't necessarily have to follow the traditional tropes, you know. And that kind of goes back to you know. What um, what is it that makes them unique in your world particularly? And of course, once you do that, you got to ask yourself your their, your own questions, right? Mm-hmm. Is this something you want to stick with? What if your characters all use martial power source? What if magic is extremely rare and dangerous? You know, we know what the tradition is from a D and D setting, but those aren't necessarily things you have to abide by. Like, I, I know the uh, D&D saying Dark Sun sure didn't. Yeah, right, right. That's a good one. And, and Eberron was a complete opposite of the, the Forgotten Realms, right? Mm-hmm. Magic is everywhere. People fart and fucking prestidigitation happens. <laughs> it, that's exactly what it was. It's right. a very high magic setting. So the world's fantastic, and that's the kind of questions you want to ask yourself. What makes it fantastic? Or you could even say, okay, well, magic is super, super rare, and I want to follow more of a, a historical Europe-type gameplay very much like the swashbuckling or something like that where you want it to focus now if you're going to bring players into this mm-hmm. you're definitely going to want to let them know that because there's nothing worse than i want to play a wizard well there's no wizards and the ones that are, are super rare right unless you're going to let the players be those super rare occurrences right the world is ancient kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall leaving most of the world touched by their grandeur some way battles time and natural forces eventually claim all this is what creates places of adventure, lore, and mystery. Legends are created by lost knowledge, experiences, and technology left behind by these grandiose kingdoms. 
you know, that's that's what gives you your adventure, right? When you go on these adventures, you you hunt through runes. You you hunt. <laughs> one of these days, I'm not gonna confuse runes and ruins. One of these days. Um, I actually remember one time I played a dwarf who was talking in a very heavy Scottish accent, and players could not decide if he was saying runes or ruins. <laughs> me, I'm just doing it wrong. Um, but that's the maintenance runes over there. Wait, runes or ruins? Runes. <laughs> <laughs> in order for you to have all this rich lore, the world is old. Mm-hmm. Kingdoms have built. Kingdoms have fallen. As the person building the world, you have to have a reason of why that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, that I guess you could just wave away, nobody knows what happened, but that's not nearly as interesting. Rome is a perfect example. The kingdom has rose and nearly conquered the entire, that side of the planet. No world, yep. I mean, that's that's amazing. Why did they die if they were so big? Because they got too big. That's part of it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And you, as the the creator of the world, need to take that stuff into consideration. That's very important because that's the type of stuff that your lore master, the person that seeks out that knowledge, because there's those players, right? That's a player archetype is the lore master, somebody who really cares about that stuff. It's going to make your world feel alive and it's going to make it feel that it's been there and that it's fully fleshed out. But what if you decide you want your world to be brand new and the characters are the first heroes to walk among it? I'm listening to a show called God's Fall right now, and the whole premise is that the old gods died, and our heroes in the show are being, are the new gods, and they're raising up, becoming new gods. Oh, that's good. Cool. Oh, dude, it's it's amazing. If you've not listened to God's Fall, it is by far, in my opinion, the best produced audio drama you will ever hear. He had sound effects and all that stuff, much like our episode 26, where we did the Crit, Crit, Crit Academy trial episode. Um, but anyways, so your your world can be like that. You can decide that, okay, what comes with uniqueness of it being new? Well, <laughs> you don't know what the hell's out there. There's no predetermined knowledge. You can't say, well, goblins are bad common knowledge. Well, no. In this city, in this town, they're afraid of them. But then you move a thousand miles east and there's an entire city of goblins and they're working with humans and dwarves and, and everything and they're good. And it turns out the elves are all the villains. Or I forget who who I talked with this with or where I read it, but I remember people were talking about like a necromancy, about how it is largely considered evil in most settings, mm-hmm. but they put forth an idea for a setting or a city where it's actually not considered evil, but considered a huge pillar of society where they actually use like a undead as a labor force. Oh, that's awesome. And they even... like. Have re- 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 Revered the dead and the ancestors, and it's considered a high honor to have your corpse preserved to be a um, the fa- family's historical warrior who can be brought back in times of need. Oh, that's awesome! And I could even see that going even farther, where maybe your entire village and city is defended by undead. Right. So no longer do people who are already alive have to serve at a capacity to protect a, a kingdom, but all those ancestors. Maybe like maybe it's like being an organ donor, right. where you sign a little sheet that says, "When I die, use me to protect my family." Right. That is awesome. What was that in? I have no idea. That is an awesome concept, and I love. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to play with that because I like that. And then, um, of course, if your your village is or if your world is new, that means there's gonna be no ancient artifacts, no set traditions. 
no crumbling ruins to investigate. That means in order to get an ancient artifact, it needs to be built for the first time, Hmm. which can be very interesting, whether it's an ancient artifact or maybe you're going more of a technological route and it's like a nuke. You know, it's the first thing of its kind, and then boom, it blows up. Now you need laws in place to prevent that forbidden magic or technology. Right. You know, so a lot comes with that. So um, the next thing is uh, the world is mysterious. Wild, uncontrolled forests and seas cover most of the world. City-states kind of dot the dark bastions of the wilderness, and they're built amid, you know, crumbling and ancient ruins and kingdoms long past. No one race really lords over the world. Uh, vast king and vast massive kingdoms are are pretty rare. People know that the land where they live pretty well, but most haven't only heard stories of other exotic locations or from traveling merchants and bards who who sing and twist spin tales of the world around them. But few actually know what lies beyond really their borders and what dangers lurk and haunt in every corner. Um, we kind of touched on this a little bit with the uh, the world is ancient, but in the D and D setting or the fantasy world, they don't know what's beyond them. Um, you ever read the Aragon series by any chance? Yep. The world is pretty fleshed out in Aragon, mm-hmm. but when Aragon starts, he doesn't know most of that stuff. Or more accurately, the continent they're on pretty fleshed out. Oh, good good point. It actually is just a continent, isn't it? Um, but even when he's exploring, he doesn't fully understand what's going on. He knows the spine pretty well, which is the, the mountains valley to the north of him mm-hmm. that he's part of. But other than that, he's just as mind-blown when he gets to all these big cities as anybody else to find out that there are mages that read people's mind and all this stuff kind of everywhere and that there's an entire race of magical beings Mm-hmm. You know, he's just discovering that for the first time. And that, to me, is kind of how I envision most of, in at least in 5th edition, in Forgotten Realms, most of the villagers. They know magic exists. They know it's out there. Most of them probably haven't seen it. Actually, a good, a good example of this is, um, I can never get into the anime, but the manga One Piece. Yes. Because they almost right away establish the world itself, mm-hmm. the, how the rules work, and all the major players that you don't necessarily see right, right away, but that you know that they're there. Mm-hmm. And they even establish who, like, the uh, big mofos are, if you will, but mm-hmm. give you a good reason, like, okay, and here's why you're not seeing them right now. Right, and I actually I, I actually like where you go with that, because they, they establish the red line is this terrifying place, in this place where you go, you're probably going to die type of thing. So right. that seems to be the common knowledge. But what happens when they get there? They get their butts kicked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's exactly that. This common knowledge is common knowledge for a reason, right? Or when you find kind of the big tough guy they kept on hearing about, you find like, oh crap, this guy is horrifying to go up against. Right. We've, we, um, most people have played Halo at this point. I've dabbled. The one thing that, if you notice the difference between the first Halos and some of the later ones, in the f- first ones, the, the Covenant are pretty terrifying. Yep. Because they're unknown. You don't know much about them. By the third or fourth one, you know that grunts are garbage and are not as dangerous as you think they were. And the same thing with Halo Reach. When the Covenant first attacked, they are terrifying. And even in the art style, they portrayed that they're these monstrous beings. That's what happens when you have a world full of mystery. Yep. Is people don't know. When I describe to you this giant, monstrous uh, stalagmite on the ground. Stalagmite? Stalactite. 
I remember. Stalactite tank from the ceiling, stalagmite on the ground, I think. This giant stalagmite with flailing tentacles and a monstrous mouth trying to, to, to eat you. In one game, that might be common knowledge that that's a roper and you run the hell away. Yeah. In another one, you might try to talk to it. You know, you might not assume it's bad, or you might be too scared and just run away. Or there's always somebody out there like, I don't know what it is. Let's kill it. <laughs> that, that's it as well. So, you know, the world being mysterious, mysterious really has a lot of um, perks to it. I especially like traveling merchants being the main source of dread and fear and using, using bards to tell these horror stories about, you know, these heroes that went into this cave and never came out. And every time they go in, they never come out, you know, stuff like that. And to really get your players intrigued, but also to set them on high alert. What are you buying? Yeah. Now, kind of opposite of that, what if the world's all charted and mapped right down to, here there be dragons right on a map, you know? Huh. There actually are dragons there. Right. You know, you could do the opposite where it's not a mysterious world and that the world is so annotated that you know exactly where everything is and you know that it's it'll take me two days and three hours to walk from point A to point B. <laughs> Avoid, go swing left around the hill and back down into the valley and past the stream up here where the the what is one of like an old person when they say well when i was your age we go when i was down in your age we would go down go around the east side of the mountain and down into the valley and cross up near by where the crow flies you know yeah you may think of the truman show actually when uh they, they were talking about how like uh jim carrey's character like uh, when he's a kid she like uh notions of of uh leaving his talent and being an explorer yeah and she like a brief like a flashback of like the old footage of him saying, "I want to be an explorer like like Magellan." Only for the teacher to pull on the map. Oh, I'm sorry. Every cat has been discovered already. <laughs> you can't be Magellan. <laughs> um. So and you know, kind of going that same way. You know, asking yourself, you know, what if the great empires covered huge stretches of the countryside big. with clearly defined borders between them? I mean, they have big tracts of land. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what if you? What if your country has built a giant wall to keep the 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 other elves out, you know, or you live in, inside a large mountain range is nigh impassable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there's a lot that comes with uh, certain assumptions about the world, and when the world's mysterious, I think it adds a lot to it, which I think is one of the reasons why I like fifth edition more than I like fourth edition because we played in, uh, I, I believe the default setting in fourth was Eberron. Yes, which is a lot of magic. Yeah, um, and a lot of no knowledge. So our next Ma assumption of a fantasy world would be... Monsters are everywhere. Monsters in the fictional realm of D&D &D and other games are as natural and common as bears and sharks on Earth. Monsters inhabit civilized parts of the world as well as the wilderness. Hippogriff mounts flying and guarding a human city. Or massive domesticated beasts of burden carry trade goods. Portals to different planes open up, allowing creatures from the elemental planes loose, or demons passing through external rifts, assaulting villagers. You know, that that this right here is a staple of any RPG. Oh, yeah. Monsters have to be common. Otherwise, what are you adventuring for? Well, I guess you could do a very more... Uh, there is a Game of Thrones RPG, which is all Hunam, so... That, uh, that almost doesn't sound as fun. Yeah, you say that until you actually go through the... Uh, House building process. Mm. Got to build a house. Yep, that seems weird and boring. Like your, like your family. Oh, you like gotta plow some pitches. Let's just say you document your family history and how where they're shaped in the world, and there's random dice tales for it too. And actually, that's cool. 
Actually, the failing we we rolled up. We tried to get a game going, but never took off. But we did manage to get as far as building the house. We were like, this is awesome. Oh yeah, we, we want to be these guys. <laughs> so monsters really have to be everywhere, and it's really a staple for the adventures of D and D. And whether it's just Bert beasts, beasts like dinosaurs or bears or you know wolves, those those are relatively normal in a fantasy setting but really what makes the fantasy setting great is the the ones that are really just god awful monsters you know uh one of my favorites is the shambling mound mm-hmm. i don't know um I, everyone knows what the shambling mound is giant you know leaves and and, and uh, vines twisted around you know and that is terrifying to anybody who's never ran into one you're walking through a forest and something just kind of grabs you and starts to suffocate you inside of it, you know? You mentioned planes opening up and, and bad guys just kind of flooding in. That's important to a world, and you don't have to use the word predefined monsters. Now, the monster manual is full of full of monsters, but if you decided you wanted to be unique... And Bellows adds even more. Yeah, and Volos, you're right, Volos adds a lot too, but it, let's say you want to you wanna ditch the traditional traditional trope of these types of monsters uh cobalt press came out with uh um tome of beasts yeah over 430 pages of unique and different monsters so when you're building a world you don't have to follow the traditional monsters but it's important to make sure you've got some and or coming up with your own but being coming up with your own is dangerous Mm -hmm. um and can really destroy a game but um make sure when you come up with monsters that you come up with some really good ones. But I think the best thing would be is to give them a civilization. You know, we think of monsters and kobolds living in caves and dungeons and stuff, but they really don't have to. No. There's nothing to say that you can't have an entire village, entire cities, and a massive city of undead. They did it in World of Warcraft, right? Have you played in a game where an entire city was undead? No. And they weren't bad guys? Not very often. You know, having an entire civilization of devils and demons where, yeah, they're bad guys. Yeah, they're monsters, but they got an, an entire society. You don't see a lot of that in D&D as far as I'm concerned. But those are the things you want to think of when you're picking your monsters and you're filling out your world. They are structured. They are thoughtful. They are smart. So they would have some sort of structure to follow. We don't touch on that very much because usually uh, a demon is out adventuring or a demon is out trying to start some shit. And the adventurers stumble across him and his minions, and that's pretty much it what happens most of the time. But who's to say that two kingdoms are at war, and this one kingdom is a kingdom of demons and devils? Mm -hmm. And making a side seem good while the other side seems evil. In World of Warcraft, I'm going to use that example because that's what's on my mind right this second. But in World of Warcraft, we assume that the Horde is evil. If you start on the Alliance side, you believe the Horde is evil and full of bad people. Now, granted, there are some villains among them, but... Well, there's villains among the good, too. There's bandits. Right. Literally, by right. the time you mm-hmm. walk out to Goldshire, you're fucking getting robbed by bandits. Yeah. So that's level one shit right there. So the point is is that both sides see the other as bad or evil because their cultures are different. And if you're going to build really interesting monsters and stories, give them interesting cultures. And the same can be said for, like, uh, Aeon Online or Wildstar or a few others in there. Hear the lore from the other person's perspective. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the way the world and cultures need to be. And the best best part is neither side is necessarily wrong. Right. So yeah, monsters are everywhere. Um, 
and find a way to make them interesting and include them in your world, whether it's a flying mounted guard on hippogriffs or griffins, or if it's just the massive beasts of burden. Wow, I, we went, spent way too much time on that. Yeah. Um, civilized races band together. This is kind of what we just talked about a little bit. You know, uh, in most of the most worlds, humans are the most dominant of the races. But they're not the only ones that are intelligent, right? You've got elves, dwarves, you've got halflings, gnomes, mm-hmm. you know, even Goliaths to an extent are smart. Um, each have their own societies and their cultures. And, you know, sometimes these races have their differences, whether they're big or small. Um, that can lead to war or disagreements or just outright hate. They all collectively have decided, though, they are stronger as a team and working together than they are on their own, which that's how alliances and treaties form. You know, that's, that's important when you're designing your world. When you decide, let's say you start your world off with five big kingdoms, right? What are the cultures that make those kingdoms great? What are the uh, races that dominate those? And how do those races... What do those races think about other races? Mm -hmm. In, I think it was, was it 13th Age I was playing? When I was at Gen Con last year, uh, I did, I think it was 13th Age I was playing. And one of the very first things they have you do is say, okay, pick a faction you're with. And then you have to build one positive or neutral um, relationship with one faction. And you have to have a negative relationship with another faction. So when you're designing your world, make those important and then describe why why do they have those relationships. Is the reason that um, Undercity doesn't get along with Ogremer because they're undead? Or is it because some event happened in the past that caused them to not like each other? Now, they might be on the same team collectively during war and times of strife, but they also might not necessarily get along when they're at that point. Right. You know, you can have you can have disagreements with somebody and have hate towards somebody but still be collectively on the same side. Mm-hmm. Those are those things are what make the world interesting, don't you think? Oh yeah. What if the cliche that dwarves and elves don't get along? What if instead they do get along? What if they love each other? They're great, but everyone hates humans. Although the cliche also goes, yeah, dwarves and elves hate each other, but they hate orcs more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but maybe then what if that's not the right, not the case right, right. though, right? Yep. What if that what if elves hate half elves? They're a lesser being because they hate humans. Are they half breeds? And now they're a half breed, and they're insulted all the time. You know, that's how you create an interesting world. Is why do it's all about interactions of people. It doesn't matter if your village is a hundred people or if it's ten thousand people. The interactions of how those people talk, communicate, and what their thoughts are of each other are really going to determine how well built your world is. Great. I just thought about the uh, short story I read in the compendium of uh, short stories based off like, a tabletop RPGs, but one of the ones I remember is it's called The uh, Gods of Every Other Wednesday. <laughs> That's weird. Well, actually, that totally makes sense because the entire press of it is what are the D&D characters doing when they're not being controlled by players? <laughs> And so, like, every <laughs> that's awesome. And and basically, like, the uh, the gods take control of them every other Wednesday because that's when the players are playing their D and D game. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. But the um, but I loved how especially like, what the characters are doing during their downtime, how it poked fun at all the tropes that all the fantasy races. <laughs> right, like, right. The dwarf like it seems like the gods when he controls me, he themes that dwarves lo- love ale. It makes me guzzle all the time. 
I hate ale. Why do they think I love this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so moving on, uh, you know, in Forgotten Realms, you know, magic is not every day, but it is a natural phenomenon, right? They talk about yep. the weave, the weave of magic. Everyone knows it exists. Um, in most cases, nobody is really superstitious of magic, but neither is it. Neither is using it really a trivial feat, right? It's no. a pretty big deal. Magic users are rare. Um, common folk may see evidence of magic every day, but it's usually minor, you know, cantrips, maybe scrying, maybe a little bit of healing. Um, some of the more powerful stuff might be like the transportation circles that are in the really big cities. Evidence? There's supposed to be evidence? <laughs> little, uh, what is that little thing the men in black use? The neuralizer? Yeah. No, there's no evidence. <laughs> um, that was actually great. Rick and Morty, but yeah. Yeah, and they might even see occasionally see like a street magician that might have a familiar or a cleric that tel helps to tend wounds. But other than that, magic really isn't that commonplace. Um, and that's really important because that just shows how fantastic your characters are. When you run a character who can smite evil, who can create fire out of nothing, who can heal away wounds... At level one, they are already amazing. Yeah. And some people forget that. And that's, yes, you can easily die because even at level one, a stab to the gut is going to hurt. Mm -hmm. But you're so fantastic because they don't see this stuff. When you go to a village, like you guys just were in an adventure the other day and, you were, and Luke was bent out of shape because there wasn't a local healer. Right. Because it was a small village of like 100 people. No healer in sight, so what are you going to do, you know? Of course, he was playing an arrogant elf mage from a higher society, so... Yes, yes, he was, and he fit his character perfectly. But yep. the point is, is that um, when you're playing D&D, &D, when... Make sure... Make sure your NPCs react to how commonplace magic is. If they, if you're in a small village and they've never seen somebody, some a, a paladin summon his steed... And this majestic thing just forms out of nowhere. That's pretty amazing. And they should be reacting that like it's pretty amazing, right? When a wizard is using prestidigitation to flavor his food and he's in a small village and they can smell it. Oh, that smell. Why does that smell so good? You know, those are big deals. And yep. you need to you, you need to really if you're going to uh, do that when you're going to when you're building your world, you want to make sure that you focus on that. Now, what if it's the other way around? What if you decide your world is magic is everywhere? You're closer to Eberron, where uh, every area, every village is owned instead of by a noble and a lord, is run by maybe a high mage. Somebody who can literally control people with a snap of his fingers. In more ways than one. Right. Or what if, you know, we, magic items are sold in shops? Once again, back to Eberron. That's how Eberron was. You could go to a shop and buying magic items was no different than going to a marketplace and buying fruit. You know, that's one thing I like about 5th edition is that's not a thing. Yeah, I kind of miss that, though. <laughs> I don't because that forced that was a lot of power creeps. Like, you, at certain levels, you had to have magic items or you weren't shit. In 5th edition, you can go without magic items and still be powerful. Right. That's you weren't relying on it, and I, I actually like that. But, you know, what if instead of magic, you have powerful technology, right? You know, when you're building your world, you want to make sure... Uh, you want to decide whether these things are important and how common and how... Uh, available they are because that's going to determine how people react to you if you walk into say a small uh, city of a thousand 
and you demand to meet with a noble and you make a big sting with your pre- big stink with your prestidigitation or your flaring eyes and doors start slamming and open with thermitage, you know, that's going to a either scare the crap out of people or b show them that you're somebody of influence. I can remember hearing about some of the settings from a friend of mine. I, I can't remember what that was, but like a lot of the fantasy figures, like dwarves, elves, they were proficient in magic, but the humans in that setting did not have much access to magic, so they mo- more fo- focused on te- technology, so they went mm-hmm. more steampunk route. And, and that kind of is where we're going with this, is right. depending on how you set the world up, it can drive your history and your lore and your, your world as a whole. But the... Um and the humans te- technology actually annoy everybody else because, like, uh, I mean, they never got to, to like the level of society, but like, so they mm-hmm. went more steampunk. And when they finally get, get even like gunpowder and firearms, actually ticked off all the fantasy races because suddenly, well, you know, humans are equal suddenly. <laughs> and I remember even like a dwarf was complaining, "Oh yeah, why the heck would you humans want to build one of those, those cannons of yours when you can have a perfectly good, mentally enchanted apple?" <laughs> <laughs> Because not everyone can have that, right? Right. And and those those are the thing. Those little things and those decisions and these assumptions are are what are gonna help you build your world, right? Mm-hmm. Some other assumptions. Uh, the next assumption we kind of want to talk about is gods and primordials are really what shape the world. The primordials and elemental creatures of enormous power have shaped the world out of in in D anD D the elemental chaos, right? Oh yeah. Um, the gods gave it civility and permanence and uh, ward uh, the gods ward with the primordials for control of this new area that they've 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 created, and we know that the gods eventually triumphed, and primordials now slumber in remote parts of the elemental chaos, rage uh, in hidden pr- they rage in hidden prisons or float lifelessly through the astral sea. You know, if you're going to have gods in your world, you need to know how their presence affects the world. And in some cases, there's gods above those gods. Yeah, that and, people forget about. Right, and we and we see that in uh, in D and D, we see paladins and, and clerics who pray to gods, and that's where their power comes from. And so that really proves to most people that gods exist. And the example we ran the other day, you ran into the small village, and they don't believe in gods. Nope. They think ma- healing magic is just another form of magic. Magic. Mm-hmm. They to them, there's no difference. And that's what happens when you get to a backwater town and that does isn't connected into anything. They get different beliefs following why the world's the way it is, who created it, did they really create it. In D&D, we understand that this is how the world was created. So when you're deciding on your world, let's say you start with um, God Route when you're starting your, adventure or your, your world building, you're going to develop that immediately because you started with the gods. But if you build the map process where you start with a map and then build it, then you have to go back and figure out, okay, why is this here? Why did, uh, how did the gods influence this kind of forming? Okay, this city over here, they pray to this god. So how is his, why do they pray to his god, this god in this place? You know, you have to to think about all that stuff and really set it in, in stone the way it's supposed to be and the way you know it is. And then how do the people in the world perceive it? Mm Mm-hmm. And is and is there evidence of it? Is there a tome with ten rules that they have to follow? You know, and they know that this came from their god. <laughs> you know, like I remember, I once sales pitched a uh, setting idea where the world essentially was created by one huge, power, all powerful deity, mm-hmm. but then he essentially created like other um, co- cosmic creatures, if you will. 
that kind of like uh, do things for him because he's only one guy. Right. And these uh, cre- creatures, essentially what they do is, the way that something works is they basically, they, they all sing and contribute to the world song, if you will. It's kind of like how like the... Uh, that sounds awesome. Kind of like how like the Fates in Greek mythology, mm-hmm. they weave the world with, with the threads and they weave together. So, mm-hmm. And then this thing, all these creatures contribute to, to the world song, basically help it progress. In fact, the way I had spellcasting work in this setting was... Most uh, spells and an oral component because the the idea is they're the mages are changing the world by adding to the world song themselves. Yeah, right, and that that's awesome. I love that. That's a nice type. You mentioned the the fates, and that's why the fates have control over people's lives, right? Right, because they literally have all the threads that are attached to everything. And they touch on that theme too in the Wheel of Time series. I have not read that. I really need to. It's only fourteen books, man. So you know, we talked about the gods and the primordials for D and D. You know. You could easily go the other way and say, well, what if the gods lost and the primordials won? And the hidden cults dedicated to a handful of the remaining deities that managed to survive um, are kind of scattered throughout the world. And um, there's no longer is the cult of the dragon the bad guy, but the cult of Palor is a thing. And they're this collection of people who want to help others. Um, through following this deity that doesn't really exist, you know what I mean? And maybe the maybe the people you are, the characters you control, are the minority, and the world is run by demons and elementals and stuff like that. And all mortal races are are weak and feeble and not really the ones running everything. Or in some cases, you can even turn the rules and the thing on his head. And the same way you mentioned so far, like going back to Dark Sun, mm-hmm. it's saying we're short version the guys are dead, so there's no like other. No, the divine classes in theory. Right. But one player really wanted to play a cleric. And he basically worked some things out with the DM. And basically what they came down to was he basically, that player who's a cleric, basically formed his own cult <laughs> where, where, where he was their god. And he basically gained his uh, power by having people worship him. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so that yeah, kind of- Yes, I am the money bob. Worship me. Worship me. <laughs> <laughs> And so kind of touching on that, you know, what if the gods are distance? We know they exist, though most of them maintain their distance and detachments from the everyday happenings of the world. Maybe exarchs act in the world on behalf of their gods, and angels appear to undertake missions that promote the agendas of these gods that they serve. But the gods themselves, they're, while they're extremely powerful compared to mortals and monsters, they're not omniscient and they're not omnipotent. Uh, They provide access to divine power sources for, like, clerics and paladins and, you know, other people praying to them, uh, people of the cults and whatnot. Um, And they they pray in hopes that they or their exarchs will hear them out and bless them, right? Yep. Actually, this uh, actually touched on a good good point because, let's face it, we all at some... Playing D&D games, you encounter encounter like a monsters and demons all the freaking time and right to the point where i'm always like how have these things not destroyed your average peasant and not lit the world on fire but yet in the same setting we have angels and other divine beings that are on a similar power level but we'd never freaking see them <laughs> you never see them no <laughs> hmm not even when you're fighting a dracolich i'm just saying largely speaking i was gonna say because i feel like that just happened didn't it that's like the only time, though, where I've ever seen that happen. Yeah. So, um, you, but you, 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 I don't know, very, you're on a 
perfect point is that you're right. There's these powerful beings that are out there. But most of the time as the, the adventurers at level one or even up to level five and even maybe even to ten, you might not see some of these things. Okay. Depending on how important they are to the world and whether your DM brings them in. But you need to know that they're there. You should see evidence of them. I mean, my point, though, is I always feel like I come across demons left and right, but where are the angels, even though they're established in Lord to exist? Mm -hmm. Because you need to have the angels there to keep the other side in, in check, because mm -hmm. if you leave the demons unchecked, they'll burn everything. Right, and, it, and it's understood that they are they are um, there because, you're right, they're not, the, they haven't overrun every village. They have, right. So mm -hmm. somebody's out there, and it's not just the adventurers. You're you're exactly right about the yeah. the, mm. the the powerful creatures and maybe as DMs that means we need to push to make sure that we're making evidence of that. Even if you're level one and you're fighting in a town and you see an angel fly overhead, like like freaking Ash in Pokemon episode one sees the really rare Pokemon. Because like I said, even in One Piece, you keep hearing about these way more powerful dudes, but at least you see evidence of them here and right. there. Mm. So, and even use them as allies. Like in the when you guys were fighting the Dracolich, mm. um, you can't beat a Dracolich. There's no way. What do you level like three or five or something at the time? Right. There's no way you're gonna fight a Dracolich, but. The thing that I rolled said that you were going to have a powerful ally, so I rolled in the book to see what ally you got. You got a celestial ally, and so I had to fit that in there. And you're right. I don't think I've really done that very often in the past, so I'm going to step I, up my game. I mean, I, Use celestials. I mean, I don't mean just you. I just meant... In general. Yeah. yeah I, I see where you're going. Um, so, kind of counter to that, what if gods walk the earth regularly? Um, one of my favorite books, aside from Aragon series, is the Rick Royden's Percy Jackson series. And it follows, you know, Percy, who's the son of uh, Poseidon yep. or Neptune, depending on which book you're reading. And the gods walk the earth and interact with people all the time. That's how we get demi gods, mm -hmm. right? Maybe is that so? I've never personally had players meet a god, but I can see why not, you know? Uh, great. Now I'm thinking about a meme I saw on Facebook. It was like, how most Greek mythology starts? Zeus. I'm going to put my dick in that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do it as a swan. <laughs> Zeus, don't put your dick in that. Too late. <laughs> More than like, yeah, that actually does seem to sum up most Greek mythos. Right, and, and, and that's kind of what happens in the, um, the Percy Jackson series is there's three primary gods. Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. Makes sense. And they vowed never to have children because their kids were too powerful. And obviously, very first thing is Zeus put his dick in some, or Poseidon put his dick in somebody. But you find out Zeus did it first, and then apparently so did Hades. So they all kind of just broke the treaty. Yeah, they broke their own bullshit. But you know what happens when, if you decide to put gods on your plane? You're going to have to decide if that's something you want to do, if that's something that will impact your world. Um, you know, what if you have you played God of War? What if your characters could ascend so powerful to? fight and challenge the gods and take their take their position. You mean 4th edition? In 4th edition, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. What if that's a thing you allow? I personally would not allow that in my 5th edition game. Unless I decided from the beginning that I plan on them being gods. Like in the series God's Fall. Once again, you should check it out. It's awesome. The world's amazing and the story's awesome. Uh, Aram does just an amazing job. Shoot. No, I missed my... 4th edition Ranger. Actually, the game print died because I moved here. <laughs> because we only had like a small, small amount of players. Mm -hmm. so. um, and the adventure path of looking towards was the uh, epic level class I, I chose for him was uh, Undying Warrior. Mm -hmm. And it worked in his best way. He, 
he serves the Raven Queen. Okay. Which is why he can't... He, which is why why once he essentially fulfills his duties, he'll be bestowed this gift of he can't die. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, good, because I'm pretty sure the Raven Queen hates people coming back from the dead, doesn't she? Uh, they, she hates undead. Oh, okay. Isn't that what a person coming back from the... Well, I guess it wouldn't be that. Yeah, I get you. Um, all right. Um, so, I really think that's it for our world building on today's episode. Um, and the summary of this, too long, didn't read? Take notes. Yeah. Ask questions. Yep. Ask yourself questions, because that's where your answer is going to come from. Um, Take notes, ask questions. Th- there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, that is our main topic for today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you didn't, please send your complaints to the complaint department. Which is a hand grenade. <laughs> With a with a number on the pin. Um, so That's how you take your number. <laughs> before we move on to our Unearth Tips and Tricks, we have one more amazing prize to give away thanks to our sponsors. Each episode, we will draw another lucky subscriber's name, and they will win the best-selling adventure, The Claws of Madness, compliments of Lawsmith. Lawsmith is a small indie team of creative artists who remember exploring the realms together with friends finding incredible places, and meeting colorful characters along the way. They set out to deliver an experience that sparks those lasting impressions that pushed them to create their first standalone adventure, The Claws of Madness. This best-selling adventure is one that you don't want to miss. And today's winner is Miles Family 0677. That's clearly a dad that shared his family's email and didn't want to give out his personal one. <laughs> Random note, quick... So congratulations, Miles Family 0677. Um, if you enjoy your adventure, please leave a review and let Lorsmith know what you think of it. Please send us an email and tell us what you think about it. <laughs> oh, Dan, you're so cute. He says he's stopping in just to see his favorite podcast is all. That's awesome. You almost <laughs> melted my icy heart. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Our character concept today is the housewife with attitude. I cannot imagine where somebody came up with an idea like this. Nope, not at all. <laughs> um, so the idea behind this character is um, kind of in passing. She's end up spending a lot of time for some local, uh, uh, either spending time at a local monastery, or maybe she uh, is in a small village where they come to get some food or some other things, and she meets them and befriends them. And I think becomes a monk learn is taught slowly how to become a monk and of course it wouldn't be a housewife if she didn't have a very interesting weapon of choice of course what kind of weapon do you think a housewife would have uh, wooden spoon wooden spoon a broom um uh what uh what is a, the cooking rolling rolling, rolling pin? pin yeah <laughs> yeah a rolling pin i think that for me, this seems like it could be such a fun background story because pretty much you could argue that she's like got a belt full of household utensils that she just beats people with. And you could even say that she changes her weapons to suit the combats needed, right? Because we had just, I think we just, oh yeah, we did the weapons. Uh, we did the weapons one, right? Changing out the weapons where she might carry, you know, a kitchen knife for, you know, piercing damage or a rolling pin for bludgeoning or a broom for bludgeoning and, um, you know, come up with different uh, tools. But 
instead of like her unarmed strikes being like punches in in, in thorough, you know, like elbows, maybe they're just like slapping and backhands. <laughs> you literally would like bitch slap people as this character's concept. <laughs> um, and of course, being a housewife, there's something else that's really important to her, isn't it? What do you think that is? Cooking. Cooking, right? So, of course, you would be able to be the perfect character to be able to shout, Do you smell? What I'm cooking? Did you get that from Samurai Jack? <laughs> no, that's from uh, wrestling, man. That's uh, The Rocks. The Rocks intro. I don't watch pro wrestling. <laughs> yeah, I don't either, but everyone knows The Rock, dude. Come on now. <laughs> he always goes, Do you smell? With the rock, as yeah. cooking. As remember the episode where they had to rescue the uh, Scotsman's wife. <laughs> and she ended up being more dangerous and confident than he was. <laughs> um, and some of the other things that I think that could really come out with this, you know, we we don't discuss reflavoring it very much, but the dodge action is pretty generic. So if my monk was doing the dodge action, because I think they can they do it as a bonus action. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Anyways, <laughs> if they is the dodge action and you're using a broom, you could almost say like I sweep up the dust to create a cloud of distract of dust, so it makes it harder to hit me. <laughs> so yeah, that's our character concept. I think it's 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 something fun, a little lighthearted. Um, and now I know I know that it sounds very. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Misogynistic. Yes, that. That's not what I was going for. Um, but if you're offended by it, well, don't play don't it, play it <laughs> I guess. I just think it would be really fun. I guess you could say I'm a house, uh, a house husband, stay at home husband. And he just got bored and was picking it up. Who are we kidding? There's no house, stay at home house husband. That's going to pick up extra work. So that doesn't even sound feasible. <laughs> so that is our character concept. The housewife with attitude. Now, to point out, you could probably do any change of, like, fighter or something, too, I suppose. <laughs> Our monster variant of the podcast is the Guardian of the Forest. Now, the origin for this monster is the Lizard King slash Queen uh, in the Monster Manual. Um, so, I recently shared something for everyone to look at. It was uh, a really cool picture of this. It looked like a, uh, it was in a forest with a really small person and a giant, like, looked like a, like a nature deity or whatever you want. And this is kind of came out of that. Um, so, it starts with an attack called the Breath of the Wild. What do you think about that? Nice. Um, so, uh, it recharges on a five or a six, and the guardian of the forest exhales sleep gas, basically, in a cone of 30 feet, and each creature in that uh, area must succeed a DC 14 constitution saving throw or fall unconscious for five minutes. This effect ends for a creature if you have the creature, uh, ends for a creature if they take damage or if somebody uses an action to wake them up. And then, uh, so, obviously... This character is meant to be a guardian, so I wanted one of its attack to be very more, much more defensive than um, I would normally. Um, because if they're a guardian, they're just trying to protect something, not necessarily kill it. Um, and this was a really good ability that I found on one of the dragons that I thought was really cool. Um, and of course, the, the, the lizard king and queen uh, has a special weapon, the trident. Um, so we had to 
We have to. They have to be the master of their own weapon, right? You would hope so. So we give it this feature called the Master of Trident. When this creature rolls a one or a two on the damage die for the attack made with that weapon, that it, with a melee weapon that is wielding in two hands, in this case the trident, uh, it can re-roll the die and must new use the new roll. Even if it is a one or a two, that weapon must have the two-handed or versatile property to gain this benefit. Now, mostly monsters just use the weapons they're given. Um, but this gives it a little bit more versatility. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't know, that's one of the fighter... Uh, I think it's the fighter fighting style. It's one option. The mm -hmm. great great weapon fighting style um, that she has. So the idea for this character, this monster is to give something um, that really can deal with the players, once again, without necessarily killing them. Um, there's options. I could see using the Breath of Wild to put them all, knock them all out and just carry them back where they started. So maybe they're invading this thing's territory. And it knocks them all out, and then all its minions just drag the, <laughs> drag the adventurers back where they started. <laughs> and so every time they come in, they get slept, and they get dragged back out. Yes, uh, Dan, it's very much like Lucky for Two-Handed Weapon. Um, and basically, it basically allows for a bump in damage when she needs it, or when he needs it, whichever one you use, he or she or whatever. Um, but the main goal of this character was to try to be more of a defensive thing. But when she gets an offensive, there's no stopping her or him. Or it, whatever. Uh -huh. If you decide. Um, uh, for the Guardian of the Forest, I didn't really give it a description. You use the uh, the origin for the Lizard King and Queen, but what I kind of envision is like um, just it taking on like a force of nature type look, where as the characters are there, this tree begins to form and grow and vines swirl around it, kind of much like a shambling mound maybe. What do you kind of envision the Guardian of a Forest looking like? I kind of picture something like a... Like, like a giant-sized centaur, but instead of, like, an antlers coming from his head, it's, it's, it's like tree branches that, that look like antlers. Oh, that is cool. And you can make it as big or as small as you wanted. Yep. And maybe it, it maybe it's made with all the components of the forest, but not actual, like, flesh. So it looks like a centaur, and the branches are the tree. Yep. Um, and if you really wanted to get fancy, you could do, like, a, I could... Oh, dude, I just thought of something awesome. You could get really fancy where there's fruit on it. And let's say they decide to slay this beast... And it, they eat, they grab the fruit, and now they've got some sort of consumable item that they can devour to either heal themselves or recover from exhaustion or something like that. Something anyway. Oh, that would be awesome. See, if I did something like that, I would have to really try really hard to make them feel guilty for slaying the Avatar of the Forest or the Guardian of the Forest. That's awesome. I love that. So that is our monster variant, the Guardian of the Forest. Oh, look, I feel like I just talked a little bit about this. That's probably why it was in my mind. Our encounter of the podcast is the invasion of the Pinkskins. A small village is expanding its territory, chopping down trees for building material and plowing the land to make way for expansion. They are running into dif difficulty with, with lizard men and other forest dwellers attacking them while they attempt to work. Our heroes are tasked with re removing the threat to the villagers. For years, the Guardians of the Forest has attempted to stop the constant assault on their land by the humans. When the attempt to make contact is made, the humans pick up their pitchforks or hire ventures to slay their kin. The Guardian, Lizard Queen, has had enough. The humans are greedy and selfish and care not for the land that nurtures them. She sends her kin to make an example of them. I guess we'll stop there. So I kind of just talked about this because honestly, I forgot it was the encounter. Um, so we can actually, in this example, we can use our monster, our monster variant as the guardian. So basically, the 
there's a small village that's just outside this forest, and they're just expanding their territory. And what happens when you do that? You destroy the area around you, right? Mm-hmm. You chop down trees, you knock out bushes, you, you till the land, you do all the stuff that, to them, is normal for surviving, right? Yep, and you eat your lunch, and you go to, to the lavatory. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Uh, we're glad you like the ideas, Dan. Um, <laughs> so, basically, at this point, the humans aren't really doing anything necessarily bad, are they? Nope. They're not doing anything evil. They're just surviving, right? And they keep m- multiplying, so they're expanding their territory. And, you know, as they're pushing into this forest, it's really is pissing off the guardian of the forest because they're killing the forest. Yep. So, at this point, the heroes will be tasked with trying to slay this, this beast, this guardian, and all its kin for some gold pieces. But there's more to it than that, of course. But Right. Yeah. Will, or will they listen and try to help the Guardian reclaim her land and deal with the selfish humans? Because if they don't just go outright in and destroy this thing and they start to talk to it, they might find that the Guardian of the Forest isn't a bad person either, isn't an evil deity. It's just trying to protect its land that it's been around for a thousand years. So then, the, once again, moral ambiguity, the players have to decide... Who's right in the situation and who's wrong? Is the is the, the are the humans right to expand because they need more room, they need more logs, they need fire for the winter? I mean, is it wrong for them to want that, or is it wrong for the guardian to send the forest dwellers to attack them and try to scare them off? Because either way, people are getting hurt, right? People are getting hurt, and and, and creatures are getting hurt. No one wins. Right, so maybe 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 the players task themselves with coming up with some sort of uh, some sort of arrangement between the two. Yeah. Maybe instead of going out and directly slaying the guardian, maybe instead they make an arrangement that the guardian will allow them to take so much of the forest every year, but they can't take more than that. Or it does go out in all-out war, and either the forest burns or the people die. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Or maybe some other solution of coexistence. Whereas the humans in the forest giant come up with a elf-like solution, and they just live among the forest and build around it. Oh, there you go. That's a good one. Maybe they make an agreement where they're not allowed to destroy the, but they could live in it in the trees, or maybe cut into the the tree, cut into the trees, so they build houses out of the trees. But then the tree is still there and fine and intact for the most part. Right. That's awesome. I love that. I think this would be an absolutely fun encounter i wish i would have came up with a better name than invasion of the pink skins but <laughs> i'm not very creative as you guys know with the whip and nene so <laughs> uh, that is our encounter of the podcast the invasion of the pink skins our magic item of the podcast is the arrow ring this actually i found this today and i changed it with what was here because i liked it so much from game master stash this ring was created by an accomplished wizard who was a part of an adventuring party he made it for his wife and traveling companion as well as the archer in the troop. She wore the ring as one might a wedding band. Eventually, through the party, met, eventually though, the party met with a foe that they could not defeat, and the ring was lost among the loot. Um, so the, <laughs> this ring actually has some really cool features on it. So um, have you guys ever, uh, you had to have seen uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> What's the name of the guy who whistles? The, Yandu. Gandu? Yandu. Yandu. With his whistling arrow. And he can control it. This is very much what this reminds me of. So it's got two features. Twice a day, the ring grants the ability to curve the arrow in flight. 
effectively allowing the archer to shoot without penalties to the target with partial or total cover behind an obstacle. That is awesome, right? That's twice a day. That's yep. That's not ter- that's a pretty nice amount to be able to do that. But that's not the only thing it has. Nope. Ian, what's the other thing it has? Once per day, the ring grants complete control of the fired arrow's movement to the archer's mind. They are able to move this arrow at will within 400 feet. The archer, however, must keep an eye on the arrow itself, and the effect lasts for 10 minutes or until the arrow strikes its target. Yandu, right? Yep. That's exactly what that is. And obviously, it doesn't say anything about whistling, but who the hell wouldn't whistle when they do it? They give it like whistle commands like their dog. There we go. I got it. Sorry if we break your eardrums with that. But yeah, um, I really like this magic idea uh, item, and I really feel like it could apply to any class that carries some sort of ranged weapon. Um, so to me, this is really cool, um, and it's something that can really be used by anybody in the party that has any sort of range. It says ring of arrow, but I could easily, as a DM, fit this in for bolts or uh, sling bullets or some anything like that. Something you throw. <laughs> just, just chuck a rock and watch it like fucking magic bullet its way around. <laughs> or a hammer. Or a hammer. Oh, dude, that's awesome. You just throw a hammer, and as it's tumbling end over end, it stops, and then turns around and does like a 90, like a UFO, boom, right into somebody. That's awesome. Um, nope, Toy did not steal that from Thor. <laughs> nope. <laughs> what are you kidding? Thor doesn't have a hammer no more. <laughs> uh, Shh, spoiler. It's in the trailer, dude. That's the joke. It literally blows up. <laughs> That's the joke. Oh, well, that was a bad joke. Um, oh, by the way, Dan, if you haven't, you have to watch Thor. <laughs> um, so that is our magic item on the podcast, the Arrow Ring from Game Master Stash. Our Dungeon Master tip of the podcast is the turnaround. Now, we were just talking homebrews and building your own world. Um, this is a great Dungeon Master tip for that. Um, players are always used to asking, Hey, Ian. What do I know about this area? Hey, Ian, where is this place at? Is there anything around here? I don't know, but there's a map for that. Really? (laughs) Um, So as the DM, if you got a homebrew world, instead take the player's question and turn it around on them and ask the player. So a common phrase might be, what do you think about it? Or what can you tell me? So if Ian walks up to me and asks me, why aren't there all these demons around here, but I've never seen any angels to fight them, dicks? Well, that's a good question. What do you know about angels? Well, I know they were d- d- divine champions from the gods. Yeah, so if they're divine champions, you think they're probably busy? What could they be doing that's more important? What could be more important than trying to slay these demons and trying to burn down this entire country? Well, maybe there's another bigger city that needs more help. Maybe there's a big giant deity that they're fighting right now. I mean, it could be any number of things. So I actually wrote down an example that's really good. So we're going to go with that. <laughs> so in our example, heroes are traveling through Elvish territory and are debating to seek refuge in an Elvish village. A player may inquire if they know anything about the Elvish culture in the area. Normally, a check is made and is determined um, is used to determine this. But instead, if your world isn't 100% fleshed out, which it might not be, or if you're willing to play a little bit and give them more creative freedom. Instead, you could ask the player, you recall meeting several nice elves in the past or have read up on them in scrolls or a tome. You tell me, what did you read about them? Well, I do know that you never give them gifts of carved wood because they consider that mutilating trees. Okay, so, <laughs> but aside from that, 
they're not bad folk, right? Nope. So immediately you guys stuff away any carved up wood <laughs> so they can't see it, and then you go and ask for help. You know, a lot of people forget, you, and I, I see this every day when I'm reading Facebook posts, it's I'm the DM, it's my world. That is bullshit, and you know it. It is not your world. It is our world. Not going to lie. I have seen some people with the mentality of I'm the DM, I'm always right. And that's a great way to not have players for very long. You're right. You know, the, the I might build a world, but the players aren't just in my world. They're telling a story in a, something I've built, but it's a world that's theirs, and they should have some sort of input. Now, there's strong ends on both ends of these, just like politics. You've got people right. way over here and people way over here. The point is, is that as a dungeon master, when somebody asks you a question, give them an option to fill in the answer themselves, especially if it's something their character would know already. Right. You're right, Dan. It's, and it's, it's horrible, and there's a lot of people that have that. It is a shared world. It should always be a shared world. Thus, they should be able to have some input, especially because there is no way in hell the DM has flushed out every little detail. Nope. There's no way. Nope. <laughs> Joe just wants people to show up. <laughs> Um, uh. maybe, maybe they're trying to tell you something, Joe. <laughs> no, are you, fo- are you following all of our DM tips? <laughs> Dan says the DM should strive to create something that the PCs can thrive in, uh, with the best possible role play opportunities, which is one of the reasons why I kept the wearing games, of the world open. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That is our dungeon master tip of the podcast. The turnaround. Our player tip of the podcast is don't, don't be, be a dick. dick. And, Ian, how can they avoid dickitude? Why, this week, they can do it by giving your weapons names. Oh, my God, yes. I love this. So, how many people know what Excalibur is? I do. I do. How, how many people know what Mjolnir is? Well, I watched Thor yesterday, so, no. <laughs> okay, not yesterday. But well, yeah. we know who, Th- who Mjolnir used to be. <laughs> yep. You know, a, a lot of legendary weapons have names tied to them. And something that you see often in D&D is I have a flame, uh, a frostbrand sword, or I have a firebrand, or you've got these swords and weapons that are powerful and unique, but they're just, they're unique, but they're generic at the same time. You know what I mean? Yep. And one of my favorite things, I had a player, um, John was part of our game one time, and he had this character, and I think we did in a, a character uh, tip about it of talking to his weapon, or a character concept, where he gave his character a name, and I don't remember the name of it, but he was constantly talking it, talking it like, oh, baby, I love you. We're going we're gonna to make such sweet hammering love today. We're gonna, we're gonna, you're going to pound down that door, baby. You're going to hit it harder than you ever hit. <laughs> you know, and he would just go in these ty- conversations, and for the l- love of me, him naming his weapons was actually fun and enjoyable, and it makes... It makes me wonder why we don't do that. In in Dragon Age Origins, the the dwarf, what's his name? Ogren. Ogren. What Bianca is the name of his crossbow, right? No, that's the I was talking Dragon Age One. Oh, which one's got the cross crossbow Bianca? Uh, you know it's, it's number two. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about, right? Yeah. <laughs> um he he names his bow Bianca, and everyone knows that his bow is Bianca because he talks about her all the time, like she's a person. You know, when your characters get weapons, or even when they start with one. Give it a name. This weapon was... This blade... Uh, um, damn. Hey, Joam, I need your help. What were some of the name of the weapons in Aragon? Answer that for me, because they had really cool names. Brzinger? No, that was the name of the fire spell. And the name of his sword, because he named it after fire spell. Oh, did he? Well, that's less cool. No, there, what was the red guy's? Uh, Murtug's blade. I don't know. 
I don't know. But anyways, um, once when your characters start with their weapons and they give them names, they that immediately well, how did it get its name? He named it Prison Gurk because of the, the, the first spell he ever cast. Right, and that mm. gave story to that weapon. And the characters already at level one, we've already talked about that they're they're beyond normal, they're powerful, and because of that, their armor should have names to it. Their shields should have names, you know. Yeah. So a piece of equipment should have some sort of something about it that makes it unique, and a name is a good, easy way to do that. Um, the the traditional joke everyone says is, "I'm going to name my weapon kindness, so I can kill people with kindness." You know that even that is funny in and of itself. You shall stay in line, or you shall meet justice. Justice is the name of my axe. <laughs> <laughs> That's another good one. So, in 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 out of that comes character character kind of uh, character play, you know, with your role play there. But anyways, as a player, give your weapons names, give your shield a name, give your a piece of armor a name. You know, uh, it can really help bo- form bonds with equipment and make it feel that much more unique. I mean, we do have a paladin in our adventure league group that talks to his hammer all the time that he convinced it. Zarak. Yeah. That was the name I was thinking of, and that's a really cool name. That he always talks about his hammer that he believes is alive, even though it isn't. Right, and and, <laughs> and that's what's funny about it, because what happens when he does finally get a real sentinel weapon? Does he start talking to both of them and only one answers? <laughs> Third, why are you talking to the hammer? Well, be, because was the, he was mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> He's mad that I didn't crush that goblin's skull when I had a chance. That would be an interesting paladin concept, where anytime he doesn't <laughs> do anything righteous... His inner self comes out through his weapon. <laughs> um, Zarak is the name of Murtug's weapon. That's awesome. Yeah. So that is our player tip of the podcast. Don't, Don't be, be a dick. dick. And you can avoid dickitude by naming your weapons. Yes. Zarak. That's an awesome one. I love that. Um, so before we close out today, we have one more awesome prize to give to our listeners. It's been a long few days of travel, and the adventurers are tired of eating rations and sleeping on the ground. The road opens to a small town with an inviting tavern. The smells of grilling meat and ale fill their nostrils, and the sound of laughter and music float out the tavern's door. Unlucky for the adventurers, they've stumbled upon Dragon's Breath Tavern. What starts out as a pleasant evening of food, drink, and entertainment soon evolves into an adventure that takes the party into and under Dragon's Breath Tavern. The adventure includes roleplay, exploration, combat, and a dice game called Demon Dice. Oh, and I'm done. And today's when there is Snipe 42. Comes crashing down and it hurts inside You gotta take a stand, it don't hurt to... Congratulations, Snipe42. Please join us on our next episode where we will be continuing to discuss world building. We are going to talk Dawn of Worlds. We talked briefly about it in the show earlier. That'll probably get clipped out. Um, Dawn of Worlds is an awesome game created by a couple fans of D&D and roleplay in general where you play a game where you take on the position of gods, and by the end of the game, you have an entirely full, flushed-out history and world. So we're really excited about that. And if you have any feedback, unearthed tips and tricks, or topics you'd like to discuss, please send them to us. You can email them to critacademy at gmail.com, 
Or you can always find us on Twitter and Facebook at Crit Academy. We hope you enjoyed your experience here at Crit Academy. And if you did, you can help others find our show by leaving a hopefully five-star review on iTunes or your platform of choice. Or just send us a message telling us how much you enjoy the show. And also be sure to give us a like and a share. Yeah, we cannot, uh, we cannot stress enough uh, how much sharing our posts and liking our posts does does to help our show reach more people so please do that it really makes a big difference to spreading the word and getting our show out there we don't actually and the more our show gets out there the more people like us and the more people that like us the, the more, more stuff money we'll do. I get. oh <laughs> yeah you're right the more people that like us the more people that more content we can put out is what you're going with yep yes like and share our show it really makes a difference whether it's just our show or some posts that we make make sure to subscribe to our show at critacademy.com so we can help you on your future adventures, as well as you get a chance, you'll be entered to win cool prizes each and every week. They are cool prizes. Oh, yeah. Snipe, feel free to, uh, please email us to collect your reward. You'll also be able to find links to our fellowship members there as well. Our newest member is also available now, D&D Character Labs. The guys are awesome. They create characters each and every week and pit them against one another for battle. Head on over to interpartyconflict.com uh, and check out those guys as well. They got an awesome show where they answer your questions, and they are very experienced, and man, they just got nice voices to listen to. I don't even think my voice is nice to listen to compared to theirs. I'm a little jealous. No. Gabe, Gabe is pretty uh, pretty enjoyable. Check out Oricon's Lair. He does amazing reviews, and also check out our sponsors, Goblin Stone and Lordsmith. They got all kinds of other goodies for you. I am your host, Justin. And I'm your co-host, Ian. That next part is you. That next part is always you. I always have stuck in my, my head we say at the same time. <laughs> no, never. We did once. And I'm your co-host, Ian. Thanks for listening. Keep your blades sharp and spells prepared, heroes. And keep those healing potions brewed. <laughs> <laughs>